You are listening to Holy Heresy, a podcast that looks for the questions found at the intersection of spirituality, justice, and the arts. Holy Heresy is brought to you by the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Good morning and welcome to First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. Our presence in this shared space we create each week enriches our community. Here we are all welcome wherever we are on the journey, and we are free to be who we are, to love who we love, and to explore our faith and beliefs at our own pace. Today we continue all our fall series, An Evolving God, An Evolving World, and Evolving Purpose, as Reverend Michael invites us to consider our place in this evolving world. Each week, through the liturgy, the words, the message, and the music, we listen together for the divinity that resides around us, among us, and within us. We map our world in story, Mark Iaconelli writes. The world falls apart. We map a new world. Again and again, we story our lives to situate ourselves. I am here, not there. We are here and long to go there. Once found, new possibilities emerge. Curiosity rises within us. When Israel found itself in Babylonian captivity longing for home, they set out to restory the God that they had experienced as an ever-conjugating verb, I will be who I will be. When destructive chaos encircled, the people took to papyrus and pen to map a new world. Genesis 1 was written, Bereshit bara Elohim et va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. When God created, when the breath of life caused the flurry and flourishing of diverse life forms, all that came into being was a reflection of the holy and deemed good. The new story was a vision of hope, a counter to despair, a way to hold some shared truth in the wisdom of the world when it was most obscured. The first chapter in the Bible is Israel's insistence on creation's goodness and God's enoughness. Every life is valued and generously receives what it needs. In Psalm 104, our reading today read so beautifully. The composer resets Genesis 1 for the new temple when the people finally return home. It becomes part of the liturgy of praise. Among its verses, the universe is surveyed, the heavens and the earth, the waters and trees and birds and goats and grapes for wine and people and oats and lions. It ends with an affirmation of the perpetual breath of God that gives life to all and feeds everyone through this world of abundance. Our companion for this series, Sister Joan, 
fascinatingly restories these verses of Psalm 104 in terms of science, writing, Science has become my new spiritual director. It is science that brought me face to face with the awareness of this overwhelming, immeasurable presence that is God. It took me to the edge of life, beyond the fairy tale God I was taught to believe in. It helped me to understand that the light was the energy from which all things come. God, to be God, is the substance, the embrace, the whole of life. She continues, It is out of five basic elements, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and carbon, that all the elements of life come. These five elements are at the base of all life processes, in all of us, in all living things everywhere. Nearly all the elements in the human body, of course, were made in a star. The poets told the truth, that we are stardust, but stardust is the same stuff of a cosmic God. Think of it. God is within us, and we are within God. God within us is light, the essence of revelation and insight. God within us is energy, the pointer toward the tomorrow that comes out of today. God within us pours out on us the reckless generation of the gifts of life. From ancient wisdom written under oppression to verses sung by former joyful captives in the temple to a 21st century trailblazer named Joan, the vision is clear. We live in a network of interconnection and interdependence where our separateness from each other and the whole fabric is mere illusion. Their vision also powerfully challenges the myth of scarcity, which justifies greed and hoarding more than we could ever need for the unfounded fear that there is not enough for all. The myth of scarcity is used to justify unbridled exploitation and extraction and it perpetuates injustice while so many lack for basic need. Psalm 104 counters. And what a vital vision for a world in such disharmony. Oh, that we might receive your gifts, O God, taking only what is needed with grateful hearts. The poet cries, revealing heartbreaking grief among the psalm's verses of praise. This week, I learned a term that accurately describes what I have been feeling for at least 15 years. Solastalgia, coined by Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht in 2005. It describes the pain we feel when we observe environmental destruction. Albrecht heard Australian farmers describe the emotion during long droughts. New Orleans residents after Katrina and tsunami survivors in Southeast Asia in 2004. And in the years since, environmental scientists and psychologists have honed Albrecht's term, claiming it is in fact grief, climate or ecological grief. 
And what makes this grief so frustrating is our knowing we can actually save what we are losing. While change is inevitable, human-caused climate change is not. Sadly, our version of the indigenous seventh-generation principle, which called people to consider that the decisions they make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. Ours could be called the current generation's principle. Our short-sightedness in service to the bottom line is literally killing us. Our oceans, forests, and untold species of creatures. And hearing, just, just wait, 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 is maddening. I was reminded this week of an episode of So You Think You Can Dance that featured that old John Mayer song, Waiting on the World to Change. Each dancer had a minute to solo as the song played. What made this episode so memorable is that halfway through each solo, the music stopped completely for five seconds, allowing the dancer to yell or scream or rage any way they chose, a kind of protest of frustration at being told to wait for it all to get better. What they were demonstrating, I realized, was lament. Lamentation, says Kathleen O'Connor, is the act of naming what is wrong, that something is out of order in God's good world. Simple acts of lament, she says, expose these conditions, name them, open them to grief and anger, and make them visible for remedy. For in its complaints and anger and grief, lamentation protests conditions that prevent human thriving. And this resistance may finally prepare the way for healing. In a powerful article released this week by Andy Lloyd, a biology professor turned pastor in the state of Maine, was a little-known verse in the Hebrew scriptures from the prophet Hosea. Therefore, the land mourns. In the Hebrew Bible, mourning was an expansive practice. The people mourn, of course, but so do the land, the pastures, and the deep springs. Even gates and walls lament. The Hebrew verb aval, translated as mourn, also carries the meaning to dry up, to wither. Where a widow might put ashes on her head in the scriptures. The land and pastures and springs mourn by withering and drying up all ways of lamenting aloud the truth of inward grief. As people lamented, they invited compassionate response and neighborly solidarity, standing with those whose lives were passing through shadowed valleys. But the same was expected when the land was lamenting, crying for solidarity and relief. And this is not an ecological lament in the way we might think about it these days. The land of ancient Palestine did not grieve pollution or strip mining or mountaintop removal. The land's lament to which the scriptures give voice is wider. The land's lament speaks a foundational ecological truth 
when one part of creation goes awry, the whole suffers. The land's grief at what the people have done points to the fundamental reality of our interconnection. Perhaps it is the boundedness of our bodies that makes it so easy to overlook that relational truth. We appear so discreet, so unitary, but we are not. What might happen, Lloyd wonders, if we used creation's lament as inspiration for what to do with our own too rarely acknowledged grief? If we engaged, in other words, in biomimicry. Biomimicry is literally the copying of life. The practice looks to non-human nature for inspiration, for architectural and technological design, and even the transformation of human cultural systems. Humans try to solve problems by carefully studying the natural world and imitating what we see there. We do this because we observe that nature has often developed efficient and intricate means to an end. Often solutions that the human mind cannot find are available in nature if we look closely. Reverend Otis Moss III has extended this concept to what he calls theological biomimicry. When we recognize the interdependence and interconnection in nature, he said, we might then begin to build human systems that are interdependent and interconnected, based on justice and love. Perhaps this work might begin with the recovery of that ancient song. We find the song of, our, of the poet on our lips when we tell the story again of a world created for justice and peace. When we affirm there is enough for all, but confess that our greed is impeding it all. We find the ancient song of the poet on our lips as we choose what and how we eat, in our hands as we vote with the earth in mind, in our hearts as we stand firm in the face of just wait, in our voices as we insist with the breath of life itself that all of it, all of it is good, worthy of love, protection, flourishing, and joy. We map our world in story, Mark Iaconelli writes. The world falls apart. We map a new world. Again and again, we story our lives to situate ourselves. I am here, not there. We are here and long to go there. Once found, new possibilities emerge. Curiosity rises within us. What story are we writing in these days? Individually, collectively. Do our spiritual autobiographies include our evolving world? If not, perhaps we've just realized how our next chapter must go. Amen.
If you enjoyed what you heard, you can join us for service each Sunday morning in person or on YouTube, or consider supporting First Church by making a tax-deductible gift at fccla.org slash give.